Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. This is the Word of God. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let us pray. Father God, through the power of your word this morning, cut us down in worship of you, in greater reverence and awe of you, so that we might be able to be better servants of the one who holds the keys in the throne room of heaven in his power. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he proclaimed that his people were the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Basically, Jesus' idea was his followers were the true Jerusalem, a city on a unique mountaintop before the rest of the world. And yet today, as we look at Pergamum, if you had been a Roman citizen in this time uh, in history and had been asked, what is the great city on a hill in Asia? What is the great city? They never would have said a place like Jerusalem. They, said, they would have said, are you kidding me? The pagan Roman would have said, Jerusalem? No, the greatest city in their eyes on a hill in Asia would have certainly been Pergamum. You can even kind of see from the cover of your bulletin, uh, it's still, even in its ruins today, a fantastic and beautiful spot. I could just see myself enjoying sitting atop that ancient site and looking over at that vista, that body of water uh, that behind it. And apparently even uh, you can see the other, in another direction the Mediterranean, which is only uh, 15 miles away. In the world of ancient civilizations, Pliny the Elder, he was a Roman author during the time of the Apostles, he actually called this city, Pergamum, the most famous city in all of Asia. It was, so Pergamum was the greatest city on a hill in Asia, only outdone by Rome in their esteem, in their entire empire. It was a hilltop also with history. Uh, Alexander the Great actually climbed this mountain with his troops in order to conquer it with his, from the Persian Empire. And then the Hellenistic kings that followed Alexander the Great, they ruled over the area. And then in 133 uh, BC, one of the kings uh, gave the city of Pergamum to the upstart empire of Rome as a gift, as a final gift. And so this unique city... Um, becomes this Roman asset. It also is a city that plays into the life of 
Cleopatra and Mark Anthony and Julius Caesar. You see, Julius Caesar burned down the world's greatest library in Alexandria in 47 BC. And so Mark Anthony, in his love and desire for Cleopatra, decided to take an army to Pergamum in 41 BC and basically loot it because it was the second largest library in the world and bring the books as a wedding gift to Cleopatra uh, in order to help replace uh, Julius Caesar's folly. It was a city that was of political power. It was really in one sense the city of the Supreme Court of uh, Asia for Rome. It was a, an educational center, an educational town. In one sense, it was the Harvard of its region. It was a, a, a very good-sized city, about 150,000 uh, people. People compare it to uh, Washington, D.C. in many respects because of its political power. And also, because of its amazing hilltop and its history and how uh, Roman Caesars and alike had come to, to visit there, it was filled with a great many temples, of which we'll talk about a little bit more later. And so, Pergamon had it all by the world's standards. It was one of the world's truly great cities on a hill. It was the world's beacon of a light in philosophically in matters of logic and justice. And yet nothing on the hilltops of ancient Pergamum and other hilltops of worldly wisdom can ultimately save us in the end. The Pergamums of this world cannot fill our lives with a hope and love and peace that surpasses all understanding. And their ethos and their values and their words will always end up crumbling into rubble at the end. Pergamums still exist. Dare I say, I believe we as citizens of America live in a new modern version of Pergamum. A country that, we live in a country that has been called a shining city on a hill and yet as our nation continues forward, we like Pergamum have values and principles that greatly conflict with the biblical idea of being a shining city on a hill. And so our passage this morning begins in verse 12, once again with Jesus addressing both the angelic messenger, but as I've pointed out in previous sermons, I think the ESV forgets to make clear the Greek word, also is talking to the human ministers of the church. But Jesus is addressing this congregation of Pergamum. And also, Jesus uses another description that we saw back in chapter 1, mentioned now in verse 12. We see the picture of Jesus as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. The sword, which we have understood together, can cut one of two ways. It will either cut us down in worship of Him, or later on, if we do not bow our knee to Him, it will cut us down in judgment. There are t and in addition to the two-edged sword, there are actually two kinds of sword that Scripture talks about. Uh, even the book of Revelation talks about. In one sense, this sword that's mentioned here is a long sword. It would have been a long sword by ancient Roman standards. It was one that you could cut an opponent from afar. A sword like this is a sword that was wielded within Roman culture by their governors, by their Caesar, by those who can give you the death penalty in the nation. It's not the sword of the commoner, the short dagger, 
the shorter swords that will be mentioned elsewhere. This sword is a capital punishment sword. This sword is a sword of the government. And so here is Jesus speaking to the Roman capital of Asia. And he's basically saying, reminding those of Pergamum, I am your king. And the power of my sword can reach down from heaven into the world. In places that the swords of Pergamum, the swords of Rome can never reach. Christians, while historically not in America, because our founders tried to protect the church with the separation of the church and state, um, where there's a gap from church and state. Some politicians want to close that gap. But throughout our history, uh, Christians in general, as a people, have often been fearful of the state. Even during this Reformation series we've been in, downstairs before church, we've seen many a times there's ample reasons for people to fear the state. And as our legacy as Reformed is very much aware of this, we have a legacy in one sense handed down to us by the Reformers of being able to withstand the states that tried to stop them through the power of the sword. And so Jesus begins this letter to Pergamum saying to this important city, don't forget that I hold the ultimate power in the end. The true power of the sword isn't found in modern versions of Pergamum, which can only reach you in this life to cut you down. The true power of the sword is the one who can reach both into this life and the next. And then we hear Jesus say in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. What is Jesus getting at in this seemingly cryptic verse? The idea behind the beginning is we can, there's several things here, but first, let us look at how the verse begins. I know where you dwell, and the last phrase of this verse, where Satan dwells. The idea at the beginning of the end of this verse 13 is that there is a degree of separation between the faithful of Pergamum and the larger general principle of living in a place like Pergamum. Maybe the best way I can explain this tension is a conversation I regularly have because I came here from Las Vegas. You know, um, people ask, wait, 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 you were a pastor in Las Vegas? Yes, I was a pastor in Las Vegas. They have Christians in Las Vegas? Yeah, yes, they have Christians in Las Vegas. Oh, that must have been so hard to be a pastor in Vegas. Actually, in a lot of ways, people didn't accidentally stumble into the church. There wasn't this long historic church culture. People knew why they were in there overall, more so than not in the casino down the road. So... The reality is Pergamum in one sense, Jesus is pointing out, I appreciate the fact that you uniquely hold to me. I know where your rest is as opposed to the city of Pergamum. Just as Vegas isn't known for a long history and culture of having churches and it's kind of a a darkened city, it's a city with the motto of, you know, what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas, that type of thing. Ultimately, there were people there that were faithful. I actually think as America becomes more and more of a post-Christian nation, this general idea and principle 
is not just going to be a question asked of people in Las Vegas or alike. But for biblically faithful churches, um, more and more we're going to be asked, why do you go to church? There's actually churches within this community, whether it's Waxhall or, or Vegas. And so what Jesus is saying to start is, a little like I said, while I lived in Las Vegas, I didn't really live in what you would think of as Las Vegas. This congregation of believers in Pergamum clearly had demonstrated a degree of ability to live side by side with a sinful environment, but not entirely lose themselves to the sin of their culture. How are we doing when it comes to that idea? Living side by side with an environment like Pergamum, but not losing ourselves to the culture of Pergamum. There are a lot of sinful options in our culture for us to stumble upon. How are we doing? Living side by side with those sinful options available to us. Are we not succumbing to them? How might you further separate yourself from the worldly hills of Pergamum that actually are pits of sin? There's also another important point for us to appreciate, and that is found in the martyr story of Antipas. First off, do you know where the Greek word for martyr comes from? The same word that we kind of separate out and called martyr is just the Greek word for witness. Because actually the Bible's understanding of martyrdom is it's just a continuation of the witness we're called to. There's no special word for martyr. We've just made it in the English. When the Bible talks about being a witness for Christ, the underlying assumption is you'll be a witness for Christ regardless, even if it requires you dying for Christ, if it requires your life. This Antipas martyr also is interesting because the idea of being the witness is only used for two individuals in the entire book of Revelation. It's used once to talk about Christ as the truest witness because he is the martyr above all martyrs. He is the the one who was perfectly sinless and yet he died for our sake. And that's found in Revelation chapter 3 verse 14. But also here is Antipas. He gets called a witness uniquely by name. And so who is Antipas? The fact is, we know little of his story. He is a historical no-name of sorts, except for the minor fact that his name is mentioned here by the name above all names, so that means we have a great story to hear in heaven to come. A later tradition says that that basically Antipas was cooked to death. I don't want to get into the more details on that because that is a gruesome reality, but what Jesus is telling us is he is personally celebrating the sacrifice, the faithful witness of this no-name. And in him doing that, he tells us that he cares about all his individual followers. You know, sometimes we as Christians can get too caught up in the big names, the heroes of the faith, the big names of the Bible. And we forget God loves all of his bride and his body. And he knows us all personally, by name, and he considers and cares that all of us are faithful witnesses for him. Lastly, let's answer the the most interesting question of verse 13. Why does Jesus call the city of Pergamum the place where Satan dwells? And the answer is, Pergamum 
had a lot of options, and that actually might end up being the answer. I will give you which one I, I lean towards. But Pergamum, being a, a seat for the Roman power in Asia, where they had their judicial rulings, it could have been a reference to Caesar. The imperial court of Caesar had three temples here, for instance, um, in Pergamum to worship Caesar. It also could have been a reference to the fact that Pergamum had temples dedicated to the Egyptian gods. There were Egyptian gods throughout Pergamum. Also, it had a great temple to Athena, the goddess Athena. It actually, the temple was named Athena, who basically secures our, Nike secures our victory. They also had this crazy hospital. If you've ever seen that serpent staff with the snakes around it, it actually, there's a little bit of a historical debate, but it might have come from Pergamum. There was this temple to the pagan god who was basically the snake god, and it claimed to be able to heal everybody through snakes. What they actually did in the temple is the temple priest would receive somebody into the temple. There was this big thing, no one can die in this temple. And so they would receive somebody, they would kind of guard the gate, and they would look at how likely somebody would be able to survive through the night. If you really looked like you were in bad reproach, you wouldn't be allowed into the temple. They were worried you were going to die. But they would give you a sedative, and they would have you sleep in a room, and basically they would not tell you they were non-poisonous snakes, but they'd have non-poisonous snakes cover you and sleep around you while you went to sleep at night. Pretty, pretty horrifying stuff. This is why there's a lot of candidates in Pergamum. There's also, again, the libraries of learning and these sorts of things, the wisdom and the philosophy of the world. It's a philosophical center. But if I had to say one thing, it's actually pictured inside your bulletin. It is the temple to Zeus. And actually, it's the temple to Zeus, and it was called Zeus the Savior. And it was at the highest point of Pergamum. And you can kind of see around that uh, temple, there, are, there seems to be battles going on with the other gods. Those are the other gods battling. And then Zeus's altar stood above all of them. Zeus being the supreme god of supreme god of the pagan world. And it was basically, Zeus is the savior from the chaos of the other gods. He is the supreme and ultimate god. And I think Jesus is making clear that ultimately Pergamum has a lot of false gods. That seduced people away. But if I was required to say one, I would say it's Zeus's altar. It's actually interesting Do you know where the altar is found today? It's found in Berlin. Because Hitler brought it there before the outbreak of World War II. He wanted, he was making the Third Reich, the new Rome. He wanted Zeus's altar in Berlin. And so he brings it before the outbreak of World War II into Berlin. So, It's an interesting city. It's an interesting thing to consider. And God, at this point, Jesus has been very complimentary of Pergamum. But then we have verse 14. Jesus has something against this church. Something he's not happy with. And if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, especially the end of the book of Numbers, 
What Jesus says here sounds like at first a real head scratcher. Um, what is this all about? It says, you, ha- you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Well, let me give you a brief answer first of what Jesus is referring to and a more detailed answer after that. Briefly speaking, you remember that really odd thing that Jesus celebrated about Ephesus earlier in this letter? In the beginning of chapter 2? He praised Ephesus for being a church that wouldn't tolerate sin within their congregation. Well, Pergamum has the opposite problem. Pergamum is tolerating members of their church sinning and sinning boldly. But notice Jesus doesn't really address those specifically who are committing the sin of Balaam in the church. He is specifically addressing those who allow people to continue sinning in such a way within the church. He sees them as enablers. He's basically telling the true church, why do you let people stay in the church in one sense who are clearly showing they don't care about my commands and heed my words? Basically, the church is criticized by Jesus for harboring people who can continue to compromise the faith in the public square. But it's even more than that. Notice Jesus even hints that some some ungodly teaching was permitted without correction. And what was the likely teaching? Well, this is where we need to know the Old Testament story of Balaam and Balak. Basically, Balak was the king of the Moabites. And when Moses was um, brought... Uh, the Israelis in the wilderness into the land of Moab, he wanted to curse them before they entered into the promised land. By the way, we as Christians today, we're in a wilderness too, by the way. And Satan is more than happy to see us cursed before we enter the promised land. And so Balak hires basically Balaam to perform a curse. And to make a long story short, um, Balaam at first fails. And God basically threatens Balaam at that time, I will cut you down with the sword if you keep continuing this. And so Balaam tells Balak another plan to get the Israeli people off track, to get them to forsake the God in whom uh, loves them. And he comes up with a second plan. He basically tells Balak, take your temple prostitutes, take your most beautiful women, and have them intermarry with the people of Israel. That will corrupt them. And it does. It succeeds. And a plague falls upon the people. And Moses um, has to uh, basically eradicate the worst offenders. And some God does give mercy to. He does allow some of the Moabite women who they respected at least waiting until marriage uh, and, and such with the Israeli men, they to live. But some he cuts down in judgment, in judgment with the sword. And because Balaam didn't heed the word of God, we find out in Judges chapter 13 later on, he too was ultimately cut down in the sword of judgment. Uh, Not John, but Joshua. I think I said John. In Joshua chapter 13, he was cut down by the sword. Both the sword in this life, but because God's sword extends into this world and the world to come, also in judgment in the world to come. And so what are the sins of Pergamum? 
Well, the pagan temple culture has always had a history of essentially being a blend between a brothel and a steakhouse. And so, and you needed proof to... uh, that you could worship there, basically a Costco membership card, but for a more diabolical purpose. And basically this Christian church of Pergamum was tolerating some of its members going illicitly to these places of great sexual sin and to partaking of food that had been offered to pagan gods such as Zeus in a temple that calls Zeus the great savior. And so this is a great offense. And Jesus is telling them, if you continue to let such sexual sin go unchecked and taught as acceptable within your church, I will cut down your congregation. And so what's our lesson to hold to onto as a congregation from this? It's not enough for congregations to personally, individually in the membership resist sin. If we still tolerate heinous sexual sin within our communities, God will judge us for that. Now, unfortunately, to my knowledge, this isn't a problem happening at the moment at Old Goshenhoffen. But as we continue to live in a new Pergamum, in a time and place that continues to devolve into sexual sins of Pergamum, Christ is reminding us that there are certain things never welcome to be held within His church. There are certain sins that Christ will never allow His community to partake in. Now, it doesn't mean we can't offer the gospel, offer mercy to people engaged in those kinds of sin. That's what the gospel's for, to give people the good news so that they can escape such patterns of sin because those sin patterns will never offer us peace and the God-shaped soul in our heart, a hole in our heart. But we are never to get so comfortable with Pergamum sins that we overlook such sins within our church community. And then in verse 15, we see the Nicolaitans mentioned. Now, we first saw this group mentioned in Ephesus, and I didn't, I skipped over them and prom- during that sermon, but promised I'd later get into them. We can basically guess with a fair amount of certainty that the Nicolaitans were teaching people that it didn't so much matter what you did with your body sexually or what kind of places that you might eat or even if you ate food sacrificed to false gods like Zeus and pretended and went through a ceremony pretending to worship him. God gave grace. You know, Jesus loves to forgive. I love to sin. It's a wonderful relationship kind of people. And that's a distortion of Jesus' hope. And that's a distortion of Jesus' message. Jesus is not the messenger who said, go and try to sin some more. But he's the messenger who said, go now and try to basically forsake your sins. Sin no more. Also, it's interesting that the Hebrew name for Balaam is very close to the Greek word Nicolaitan in meaning. Meaning. Nicolation in the Greek means the overcomer of the people. Balaam meant the consumer of the people. And so basically, there's also another subtle point being brought here. These sexual sins can be an overcomer and a consumer of the true church if we are not careful. Even at the pastor's conference that Rob Bruce and I went this week, a lot of the discussion was how congregations continue as the public square gets more bold in what it sees as the good sexual ethic for us to have in our day, how so many more churches continue to fall. So much of the discussion was on this matter. 
And God is making clear here, He will not bless those who compromise who He is and what He stands for. And so what's my point? Or maybe how I'll explain this is I'll explain it another way. I just recently bought a suit that struck fear into the heart of my family. They are worried I would wear it preaching on Sunday at some point. Now, I'm not going to wear it preaching on Sunday at some point. uh, But it is pretty awesome as a suit. It is baby blue. It has a tie that matches and pants. And on this baby blue suit is Merry Xmas. We have Santa Claus, sloths, unicorns, and monkeys all floating on flamingo inflatables. And my wife was really worried when she first saw this suit. She said, if you wear this suit at church, they're going to fire you. <laughs> they're going to fire you. Do not wear this church around, uh, this shirt, suit around people. And I just pointed out the fact that I got it for $30. <laughs> I mean, a deal like that I could not pass up on. <laughs> But, what, how does that connect to the sermon? It does have a connection. We are not allowed to put Jesus into suits and sexual ethics and philosophies of the world and say he holds them as acceptable and not pretend that isn't patently absurd. He judges such things as he's making clear to Pergamum. It's an awful thing to do. And yet every day, congregations are falling into the temptation of Pergamum to resist being distinct and separate from the public square and tolerating the worst kinds of values and principles. And so we read the words of Jesus in verse 16. He calls on Pergamum to repent, to turn from its path they have started to go down as a church, because if not, he makes clear, he will reach out to this congregation with the sword of judgment. You know, one of the great sins of Pergamum, and frankly, the mainline churches have largely been uh, more than happy to embrace as they pretend all the ethics of the public square agree perfectly with the Word of God. And now even churches that claim to be evangelical and faithful to the Scripture are falling into the same pattern. You know, the real wicked reality of this kind of sin is they think it's a more loving path forward. But it's actually an awful thing to do. It's not loving to give people a false sense of security. It's not loving to pretend the Christian life doesn't come with a cost. A cost of a growing and a maturing of forsaking the world. It's unloving to pretend that the things in the world that entice us can ever fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts. And if we follow those patterns, we will find the same doom as Balaam and his perverse teachings. And yet Christ did not want Pergamum, this city, to end on a note of disappointment. He closes with grace. He closes with a good word. He closes with mercy for those, he says, who have ears to hear. First, he promises in reference to the wilderness that we now live in, while it's different than the wilderness of Moses, we in this this age still nonetheless live and walk in a wilderness, walking towards a promised land. And if we are faithful to him, he will give us a manna that is hidden. Basically, manna that others can't see. 
a special bread from heaven in one sense, as Jesus calls himself in John chapter 6, verse 32 and 33. And so Jesus, in one sense, is making an important biblical play on words. He's saying, do not worry about what you think you're missing in these temple feasts. Of not being able to participate in those sins as the pagans do in the life of those of Pergamum. I will sustain you in ways that the world cannot see. And then Jesus mentions giving His people a white stone, a new name written on it, that no one knows except the one who receives it. And there has been a debate on this verse in church history. Let me first tell you what I don't think it is. Some people think this verse means it's our name, a special name Jesus has for us written on the stone. And it's our kind of Costco membership card, our ticket to heaven, sort of like uh, the check-in at the Westminster Pastoral Conference this week. They had my name on it for the check-in. They had Bruce's name on it. They had Rob's name on it. I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to here. The white stone is actually the name of Jesus. Jesus, the name of Jesus is the name that will usher us into heaven. Jesus makes clear throughout the scriptures, He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way to the Father. In Him and through His name. But unfortunately, whether we're talking about ancient Pergamum or the public square of America, the world doesn't see it. The world doesn't believe it. The world doesn't trust in the fact that He is the name above all names. That it's His name. While the pagan temples and even the Roman authorities would use white stones with names on it as membership cards, as pagan shrines and places, we who partake in the manna from heaven, Christ through faith, we who know the name above all names, the sword holder who has cut us down in His mercy and spirit-filled worship of Him, we know the name of Christ. We know the name of the one who in his love, he lived, he died, and rose again for a people who at first were his enemies, who at first embraced all kinds of evils and wickedness from the Pergamums of this world. And yet through his sweet grace and precious mercy, he made us once his enemies, now his friends. And so then let us go forth from this place. Remembering that we are sustained from the man of heaven, Jesus Christ. Remembering it's his name that will enter and usher us into the temple of all temples, the heavenly temple to come. So we need not fear the Pergamums of this world. We need not allow the Pergamums ideals and philosophies to infiltrate the true church of Christ. For their mountaintops and what their dying cities offer can never satisfy us. Like the glorious and gracious hilltop of Calvary. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that in your infinite wisdom, you offered us a better hilltop. You offered us a better mountain. A mountain in which our sins were cast upon your perfect Son, who is our Savior, who rises above the pantheons of all gods, because he is the only God, the true God, the one God, the God-man. And so let us, Lord, not get distracted by the hilltops and wisdom of our society. Let us remain faithful, distinct, and apart from worldly wisdom. Let us hold true to the one who first, through his divine love upon the cross, grabbed a hold of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.